Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast. For this particular podcast, we are going to answer the gear questions that you asked us. That's right. People wrote in with their particular gear questions, and we have two experts on hand to answer them. And I'm speaking of Andrew Skirka, who's been on the podcast a couple times before. He runs Andrew Skirka Adventures. He's a 230 marathoner, and he's possibly the only professional hiker in the world. And he is joined by Mary Kokenauer. Mary's been around the track a few times. She has been a Grand Canyon River guide, a professional ski patroller, a wilderness ranger, as well as many other things, including recently retired as the assistant attorney general for the state of Montana. But Mary, we're not going to hold that one against you. Thanks, Buzz. I'm sure there is a lawyer joke in there somewhere. I think we (laughs) heard it. So please pardon me, but I couldn't resist that one. It's a big tent here at Fastest Known Time, and we welcome diversity even among attorneys. So kidding aside, sorry about that. People really did write in with some really good questions. The first one, we're going to get right into this. There's a bunch of them. There's about 10 questions here, so we better let this one roll. It's from a person named uh, Farm Boyat. And this person wrote, it's a good question, what type of sun protection is best? Mary, do you want to take a crack at that one? Sure. I definitely favor covering up over wearing sunscreen or something like that. The first thing I do is always wear long sleeve shirts and, you know, maybe some half finger gloves. I have a pair of NRS like fishing gloves that I love because they're white and they're very light and they cover the backs of your hand when you're you know, using trekking poles that always gets burned. Um, and of course I'm speaking from the perspective. I live in the West. I live in Montana. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Sierra where the sun is bright and hot up at the high elevations. So definitely covering up for some reason though, I don't like wearing pants, but, um, I mean, I mean, I wear shorts, definitely wearing pants out there. It's not like I'm not wearing pants, so but I wear shorts. So where I can't cover up, I use some kind of non-toxic sunscreen. This year I tried Beauty Counter. I really liked it. It was like this mineral sun, sunscreen stick that they have, and that worked pretty well. It was really compact light, and it stayed on my skin pretty well, and it was non-toxic, so I felt good about it. Excellent. And Andrew, I've seen you wear these half-fingered gloves before on trips. Does that mean you're a fan of covering up also? Well, uh, first, thanks for having me back. It's nice to be here with you and Mary. Um, so, yeah, on this question, so I think it's I think it's a little situational. Um, I, I've sort of evolved on this. Uh, my, I grew up back east where when it gets hot, you just take clothes off. That's sort of the kind of the, the go-to. Um and even like it's so foreign living out west now, but you know, like you go you you go to the beach and you like take all your clothes off and you lay on the blanket and get like get a tan. So it's just like <laughs> it's so weird to see now. Um, and uh, so I have I've gotten badly scorched before, um, especially living in the west. Uh, my first like very very sunny trip was the Pacific Crest Trail. I left the uh, U.S. Mexico border on June sixth. And I was wearing uh, very short running shorts and a t-shirt and a visor, and that was it. And uh, after like a week, I had I had tan lines on my fingers from where how I was holding my trekking poles. It was really remarkable. Um, so you know, I think with Mary, you know, like Mary, when I'm backpacking, I try to cover up. So long sleeve shirt. Um, I've moved to a. Uh, Kind of just like yeah, you know, like a trucker's hat, but the my long sleeve shirt has a hood on it, so it's like a sun hoodie, and I think that's the best combination. I find that like cowboy hats, uh, they just they they don't work that well. Like if it's windy or and you can't wear a hood, like a rain jacket hood over them, and then uh, like the other style of hat that has like that neck drape on it, it just there's no hat that I've seen like that that doesn't look really goofy. So um, right, the mullet look. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Andrew, yeah. It's it's Andrew, a it's a function. Weren't you wearing ahead, that Mary. for a while? <laughs> I was. I because it works. It works. It, um, it protects your ears and it protects okay. your neck, but it's a really goofy look. So I think that the hooded long sleeve shirt is the way to go. And then I'm kind of like Mary. 
where I struggle to wear pants. Um, I will if it's if I'm guiding a trip and um, I just want to like, kind of stay covered up. I'm willing to like suffer a little bit as far as my comfort, just to kind of keep the sun off of me. But for any personal trip, um, I'm going to go with shorts and just sort of sacrifice the, the legs. I will say that um, whether I'm running or hiking makes a big difference in how I dress. Um, I think with with uh, when I'm running, it's really difficult to wear a long sleeve shirt in like peak summertime temperatures. There's just no way if it's 80 degrees that you're going to be able to wear a long sleeve shirt. So. Right. Well, this is interesting because the person simply asked what type of sun protection is best and YouTube just came in, well, cover up, which is absolutely what I feel as well. I mean, that's what people have been doing for millennia. Sunscreen is a fairly recent invention and the people who spend all their time outdoors, cowboys, farmers, et cetera, et cetera. They are never seen outside without wearing a hat, but somehow recreational people go out, as you said, half naked and slather something on their skin. And I'm going to add something else to this, if you don't mind. Someone wrote an article for Outside Magazine titled, Is Sunscreen the New Margarine? Because remember, for decades, margarine is considered to be the healthy thing to do. And he's saying, you know, sunscreen's probably in that same category. It's conceivable. There is data that sunscreen causes more cancer than it prevents. The type of uh, melanomas that sunscreen prevents are not the type that cause cancer. Only 1% to 3% actually are cancerous. And so it's kind of a sketchy little thing. We can't get into that in detail here. But suffice to say, I like your recommendations to cover up. And as you know, no, I do wear a straw hat. Even when you're running? Good point, Mary. No, <laughs> not when I'm running. As Andrew said, when you're running, yeah, it's, it's a different deal. You got to keep it a little more trim. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. The, the Bedouins in the desert, they're not wearing sunscreen. They wear those long white cover-ups. As Andrew noted, if you're in a humid and hot environment, that's problematic. But if you're out west where it's dry and hot and sunny, and it's actually, in my opinion, better to repel the sun with a physical barrier. Good one. I think that hopefully sheds some light. The next question is really juicy from Dan from IG. Here you go. How much of a difference do trekking poles make and how to know when to use them? That's, that's a good question. That's a serious question. Can I go first? Well, Andrew, I could even uh, tee you up here by saying <laughs> you have guided. How many people have been on your on your trips? We're we're over a thousand now. Has any of them ever not used trucking poles? A few. Um, we we consider trekking poles to be um, standard equipment. Okay, like as as critical. I mean, if someone came out on a trip and said, I'm not going to use trekking poles. I don't need them. I don't like them. You'd be like, okay, fine. But I mean, we kind of put them in the same class as, uh, um, you know, like a shirt. <laughs> it's just like, you kind of, you kind of want, you don't need a shirt technically. You kind of want a shirt and you want trekking poles. Um, so for backpacking, I mean, trekking poles make a huge difference. Just being able to, um, get some of that load off of your legs and kind of shift it to your arms. Um, I find that uh, just the legs stay fresher, especially climbing or descending. And then on any sort of um, somewhat technical surface, so like rocks, roots, uh, mud, um, soft sand, it just gives you that extra stability. Um, and also to while uh, crossing big creeks, having an additional two points of contact, really useful. You can kind of, uh, when you're traveling in snow, you can prod the surface in front of you, make sure that you're not stepping in a hole. So yeah, we for backpacking, they're critical. I think for ultra running, um, that's a tough, it, there's some point at which trekking poles make sense. And I don't know what that point is. Um, I know that like, uh, I think it probably depends on like vertical per mile and how much you're running versus how much you're hiking. Like this summer when I was on the, um, doing the Fifner um, FKT, um, I brought trekking poles and I was really glad I did because I was going up or down 800 vertical feet a mile. Um, but I've run other 75 mile races before without needing them. Right. So, right. I get feet per mile is a good uh, metric for that. Also how technical it is as well. Mary, how about yourself? And does it change being a woman use of trekking poles or is it really the same thing? I think generally it's the same thing, right? I mean, we're using them for the same purpose. We're using them to help 
propel us up the hill faster and also kind of break our impact as we're going down long downhills and for stability. But I can say that they kind of suck when it gets technical. So I did the Wind River High Route this year, um, Andrew Skirka's version. It was very uh, awesome, beautiful, one of the best things I've ever done. Um, But there were a few sections in there that were pretty technical, like going up Europe Peak, had to use hands and feet getting up the peak there. Um, I I put them away in my pack for that, or at least attached them on the back. Um, Talus, I think they can be a hindrance and too much talus. You know, you can get them stuck in between all the cracks and break them and those sorts of things. So I think generally on trails and off trail where you're just simply walking, they're they're a great advantage. Um, But when they get really technical, you know, I think you want a collapsible pole that you can fold up, especially if you're going to travel across country. I've done that a few times where you're having to to put them on the airplane. You can collapse those down. Um, and then also, if it gets too technical, you can put those collapsible ones in, there, in your pack. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting because then in, in the Wind River High Route, then you're going across some plenty of snowfields and glaciers as well. And then you really want the trekking poles out because it you know, helps you balance and go forward and possibly use it for glissading. Yeah, that's true. Um, and yeah, they help tremendously on the snow. You know, one thing that I never do, and maybe Andrew can talk to this as well, you know, that you always see these features where they're adjustable up and down and I never adjust them. <laughs> I pretty much right. have them always uh, at the same level. And of course, most people like to use them for their shelter as well. So not only are they handy in when you're walking, but they're essential for most shelters in the ultralight backpacking realm. Right. That's a good point. So this person also asked, uh, what is the best trekking pole and for what terrain? I think you answered the terrain, which is, it also depends a little bit on the person, what they're used to, how good they are with poles. But I think... The collapsible part is important, so you can get them in the car a lot easier. And then if you get on something very technical, you can fold them up. But I just said fold them up, didn't I? There's a lot of different types of collapsible mechanisms. And I think the the tent pole style, the Z pole, where they fold is, to me, a more durable mechanism than something that slides and telescopes together. I, I would disagree with that. I think that the um, if it's a twist lock, I would agree with you. But if it's a lever lock, I think that those are proven pretty durable. Um, as far as the question on you know best trekking poles, there's no there's no like single best trekking pole, right? I mean, I, there are a couple that I really like. Um, one of the poles, Buzz, that I like is that is the UD FKT pole, which is just a joy to use. Um, it's super stiff. It's uh, it weighs nothing. Um, the issue, though, is that they're fixed length, so you can't really travel with them that easily, and you can't, um, you probably can't use them with your backpacking shelter because there's no adjustability. So unless the shelter is like perfectly designed for that specific length, you're kind of SOL. Um, another pole that I like are the Black Diamond uh, Alpine Carbon Cork, and I think, I think that that pull um they're expensive they're 170 180 bucks but i think it's like the best backpacking pull out there and then uh the other one i usually recommend probably even more are the cascade mountain tech quick lock pulls which you can buy at costco for 30 bucks and um basically you want to either buy those black diamond poles or you buy the cascade mountain tech poles i don't think there's really anything in between that's worth it okay that's a good call and i uh it, my example is from the Ultra Tour du Mont Blanc. What was this? Like 12, 14 years ago, where poles were not used by any runners in the United States. It was just unheard of. <laughs> and then, of course, you go over to France. And it's the middle of the night. You're trudging up some amazingly steep pass. And you're kind of you're, you're surrounded by people. And you realize that if someone wasn't using poles, you could say hello and they would answer you in English. If someone was using poles, he said, hello, they didn't understand what you meant. And it was that cut and dried. Everybody used poles. It was, like you said, it was a shirt. It was a standard issue, except among the people from the United States and the United Kingdom. And then after that, the next year at the Hard Rock 100, there was Carl Meltzer, who was on that UTMB race. He was using poles, and poles came to the United States big time, and uh, they're here to stay, obviously. 
the Z pole really made a big difference for ultra running. I mean, that's uh, substantially um, lighter than your traditional telescoping poles and the collapsibility. I mean, it's a much shorter pole length. You can put it in a little running vest as opposed to the, as opposed to the telescoping poles, which just kind of stay long, even when they're collapsed. I have that pole and I really like it. Say, Andrew, I have a question for you on the Costco poles versus the very expensive poles. Is there a big difference in weight? It's not the difference in weight. It's just the build quality. The the black diamond poles have it's better. It's a better. It's a it's a uh, more stout um, carbon fiber shaft. It's got they've got better locks, better grips. Whether it's one hundred and fifty dollars better, that's, <laughs> I can't decide that. That's a personal decision. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What's one hundred and fifty bucks worth to you? Yeah. Well, one thing for sure: learn how to use the poles. For example, people go out at night maybe in a long race or in a long FKT attempt for the first time, and they're a little off the back. So whatever you do or expect to do, practice it in advance. And the same is true of poles as it is true of headlamps. So there's pole technique. As Mary said, it's possible to get them wedged in between boulders and break them. But if you get used to it, that's not as likely to happen. Buzz, I would add for your audience, um, also practice the transition from using them to not using them because that's, that can be sort of an awkward uh, transition. And especially if you haven't thought ahead of time about how you're going to store your poles when they're not in use. Practice. That's good. That always works. Here's our third question. This is a tough, not a tough one. This is a technical question from Jace Trim for those long efforts, how to best recharge my GPS watch or phone. That's a good question, isn't it? Which power bank or what power source gives the best bang? You want me to go? Sure. Yeah. So um, I, there's no like best power bank out there. They're just, they're all, they're kind of commoditized. They're all use lithium batteries. Um, I think that um, it depends on how many times you need to recharge, but I think most backpackers find that a, like a 10,000 milliamp battery is probably the sweet spot between weight and uh, sort of uh, usability. And, but that's a little bit big for, it's a little bit big for like, if you're kind of doing some kind of ultra race, so maybe you knock it down to like a 5,000 milliamp, which um, I'm trying to think about, that's probably like the size of like a noon container, like a, or like two old film canisters, like, like stacked on top of each other. Um, you know, it's hard to, it's really hard to recharge a watch while you're using it. Um, it's much easier to recharge a phone because you can just throw it, keep it in your backpack and go. Whereas uh, recharge, I don't know how to, I don't really know how you recharge a, a watch while you're using it. Right. That's a very good question. Very good question. Because indeed, most watches, if you plug it in, it'll stop. It will uh, reset itself. And so what people do on the multi-day trips, to add to this, Andrew, is they will save their daily track and then they will recharge the watch and then they'll start a new track the next day and, and piece the tracks together so if they're doing a four-day fkt they will submit four tracks and they could charge their watch at night in between any thoughts from you mary yeah you know i have a, an anchor battery uh, pack there that andrew was talking about about that same size and i think i get about three phone charges out of that on a good day. Um, but I look, the better way to go with this and the better way to think about this is to think about how you can reduce your battery draw, right? So I think really thinking this through as you're getting out there, you know, think about downloading your maps ahead of time, you know, operate your phone in airplane mode, turn off all your notifications, maybe turn down your screen settings so that it's not drawing a bunch of, um, battery to fire up the screen and the light in there, close out location services on apps you're not using. Of course, not your your um, GPS app or anything like that. You want to close out the locations. You, you'd be surprised at how many apps are tracking your location that you don't need to be tracked when you're out there. So that really draws on your battery. Um, minimize looking at your phone. And I guess that comes in with your watch because you could look at your watch more and then 
save your phone for later. And then of course, when you're out in the mountains, especially now, just keeping your phone warm. I don't know how many people I come across and they're like, oh, my phone is dead, you know, and it's because it's been exposed to the cold. So I try to actually minimize the battery draw more than I like to charge, think about charging it and the best way to charge it. Wow, that's super smart. That's kind of standard procedure, isn't it? Rather than thinking about, you know, how to increase power, how to reduce load. I like that. And you can Google this. People can Google how to literally do what you just said, turn off the unnecessary uh, functions of your phone. And one of the main things you mentioned, Mary, is actually the light. You can listen to music all day long. It's really not that much drain, surprisingly enough. The light, the screen light is what causes the battery drain. And it's important to consider this because the phone is often how we navigate. As we said, you work for Gaia GPS. And when I'm out navigating, I use Gaia on the phone. And so to reduce the drain on the battery is important. Good point. Yeah. You know, you know the other interesting thing, in case people were wondering about this, I think I ought to chime this in. We've all talked about the, the anchor, that's A-N-K-E-R, I think, uh, which are power packs. And for like 40 or $50, you can get three, charge your phone up completely three times out of it. But there's also solar chargers. I'm a big photovoltaic guy. My own house is net positive electric, but I just have to editorialize. I would never, ever use solar charging on a backpacking trip. I think it's extremely inefficient. Never. Yeah. (laughs) When you run the numbers, it makes no sense whatsoever. I I actually have done that. So I had this really cheap, like, I think it was called Sun Labs. It was like maybe $20 from Amazon. And I wanted to do the Muir Trail with very little resupply and not rush on it. So um, the, the key to that, if you do do that, never, ever put that uh, solar charger hooked up directly to your phone. You need to charge the battery pack and charge that pack and then charge your phone from the pack. Because if you hook it up to your phone, it'll just suck the battery life right out of it. Oh, it'll reverse it. Yeah. It's not a good scene. (laughs) (laughs) And Andrew, I think you had the same metric that I did, which is the the weight per uh, power of a photovoltaic chargers doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's also a time thing too. I, I mean, I, I take my take back my comment a little bit. I mean, if you're going to be sitting around somewhere for hours in the middle of the day, and um, maybe it makes sense, but that's not generally the way that I roll. So, a battery pack makes a lot more sense. Okay, I have an easier question from Matthew in Mata: Shorts with pockets for extra storage. Um, of course, Andrew, you just mentioned those short shorts. That was the famed Go Light Marathon <laughs> short, which uh, you know could be seen on GQ as well as um, the Go Light catalog. But what about? But you've 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 kind of gotten a little more mainstream in the past decade, I believe. So, do you use shorts with pockets, or do you still go with a running type short? I so the shorts that I've been wearing the last couple seasons. Um, they were, uh, I found them at like TJ Maxx and they've got like a six inch inseam on them and they fit me really well. Um, and then I combine them with a pair of sacks, um, sacks underwear, like boxer briefs. Um, but they don't have any, there's just one pocket in like the back, like around the back kind of like wallet pocket, I guess would be a good description for it. Um, I, I actually don't like pockets or putting anything in pockets on my shorts. I just don't like the weight and the, like the restriction, um, kind of the, I'd rather put the weight somewhere else. Is that the same for you, Mary? Yeah, I, I, I'm still wearing running shorts, especially even when I'm backpacking. So I'm same way. I don't really like things in my shorts when I'm running. I mean, what, what am I going to put in there? So I think I would put that in my waist belt pocket when, you know, if it's chapstick or my phone or something like that, I don't want things bouncing around. And it also kind of pulls your pants down <laughs> as you're walking. So, I mean, I like to keep my pants up. What do you What are you going to put in your pants pockets anyway? So, uh, I, I would qualify a little bit. So, there's one pair of pants that I have, like a pair, like a legitimate pair of pants um, that made by Sierra Designs, and they have a very cool pocket on like the back hamstring, and it's like perfect for a phone. And that is a place where it doesn't 
seem to kind of get in the way. Like I don't feel like um, like a, a, a cell phone in like a front pocket, that just gets in the way when you lift your leg. But that hamstring sort of a nice spot for it. Um, but uh, I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's a pair of shorts out there like that. Let's identify and call attention to what Mary just said. She puts it in her waist belt pocket and that's key. So I don't wear, I wouldn't ever dream of having pockets in any of my shorts or even long pants, but you have to have a vest or a pack that has accessibility without taking it off. So that's the flip side of this. You can't take off your pack if you want to get off your phone. That would be absurd. Mary, I have a question for you. Okay. This is from Bernie O. Fagan. Talent would be handy. Does it come in a pouch or gel? In a pouch or a gel, huh? You know, I have to say there is no magic potion for me. I don't have any kind of magic potion that that makes me go faster or longer. So um, I think it's clean living, maybe. What do you think, Andrew? Clean living. Yeah. (laughs) Andrew, she said, uh, it's clean living for her. What is it for you? Oh, I mean, talent's hard. I mean, it's just you only have so much. So there are things that you can do to push, like to move your needle, but um, some people's needles can move a lot more than others. It's one of the difficult um, difficult realities that um, any uh, aspiring athlete has to, has to face up to. We'll close this question out with an answer from Frank Shorter. <laughs> That's perfect. Let's hear what Frank has to say. Choose your parents carefully. That's exactly yeah. right. Yep. Okay. Yep. Andrew, the next question, this is a good, this one's an Andrew Skirka question. From Matthew in Mata again, what tips would you have for someone getting started in pack rafting? Pack rafting, you oh. know a few things about pack uh-huh. rafting. Yeah, packrafts. So packrafts are really sort of romantic because it's this. Um, it it in theory can open up all sorts of like new route options, um, but uh, they're generally kind of. I think in the lower forty eight, there are only a few places where they. I think it's like a. It can be used as like a legitimate tool of wilderness travel, like where it's more than just like a novelty, or a novel way of going down a river. Um, so, for example, like you could go to the Grand Canyon and Canyonlands. I think those are two places um, that you could do like cool packraft trips. Uh, I think uh, you could go up to like the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem um, and like go all the way like further north up in like the Bob. I think you could do like cool packrafting trips there. But like in the state of Colorado, I, don't, I can't think of a single packrafting trip that where like you where it like it makes sense to use a packraft. Um, Mary, basically, all of our all of our raftable rivers have large highways next to them. So why do you need a pack raft? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mary, you're up there in Montana, but you've been all over. Do you, do you feel the same way about pack rafting? Well, here's the thing, Buzz. I've actually not gone pack rafting, but I am a class five kayaker. So I know a little bit about rivers and what it takes to, you know, get used to them and, and travel down them and in a boat. So I think, Literally, I think starting in flat water would probably be the best way to get going and then really move up through the different classes, class one, class two, class three, you know, as you're learning how to paddle a pack raft. So, and I think learning how to read water is really key as you're getting used to um, being on rivers, you know, learn, learning where eddies are and currents and where it's deep and shallow. Those are things that you gain as you, you know, practice your craft on the river. So it takes a long time to kind of learn those things and figure those out and fi- try to figure out, uh, you know, what you're going to do when you get in trouble. Cause I think you can get in trouble pretty quickly in a pack raft. Um, if it's anything like kayaking on a river. So, um, water's no joke. So you're right about that. Um, Andrew, of course you, you mentioned the lower 48, which specifically excludes your Alaska Yukon expedition where Pack rafting across the fjords can save huge thrashes around the edge of the uh, the fjord. And so it kind of has a place there. 
down here in the lower 48, I've pack rafted quite a bit in Canyonlands National Park, like you said, Grand Canyon. That's because, as Mary said, there's no rapids. You can take pack rafts down rapids, but this is, Mary indicated, you really want to practice for that first. Well, the Colorado River, being a pool and drop river, has many sections where it's really quite flat, and you can connect good routes by crossing the big rivers on a pack raft. And then for that, I tend to use the uber lightweight ones, the glorified pool toys. Buzz, I'm going to turn this interview on you. Can you share with us the story about how in a period of like eight weeks you learned to kayak and then did the Grand Canyon? <laughs> well, yeah. I don't think, I, I bet none of your listeners know this story. Yeah. This is the great thing about Buzz. If you like, <laughs> you spend enough time with him, he just every, like every once in a while, he'll drop this story about something that he did, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And you had never heard the story before. But then when I hear the so, story, Buzz, the is yours. when I hear these stories, it sounds ridiculous. I said, who would do that? That's stupid. Don't do that. And so I, I kind of feel a little shy, Andrew. I, you know, I'm trying to put, I'm trying to keep up a good image for our listeners so they can behave properly and be safe in the wilderness. Buzz, did you swim any of those not- rapids in the Grand Canyon? Oh, I did. (laughs) (laughs) As Andrew said, it was a very short learning curve. You know, I was an active runner at the time. I got this knee injury. And so I couldn't run for a while. I said, great, I'm going to take up kayaking. And I had a friend who after a seven-year wait, finally, you know how that goes, Mary, a permit finally came up for the Grand Canyon, 21-day trip all the way from Lee's Ferry down to Diamond Creek. And so I did this personal crash course in kayaking and you know it's it's big it's big down <laughs> it's there. huge water yeah and i think I, I wasn't very good but i i learned the technique really is that attitude helps a lot and so when you're coming up on something you know how it is in a pool and drop it's you're down low it's a flat horizon line but you can hear it and as you get closer, you can just hear this roar, but you actually can't see the rapids until you go over that lip. And at that point, you got to put the gun down, right? You got to hit it because if you're wallowing, you're going to get tossed around like a cork. And so attitude served me well. When I went over that lip, I just started paddling forward into the rapid as hard as I could. And so I still swam three times, but oh. I thought three was reasonable. I want to know which rapids, which ones did you swim, Buzz? Do you remember? <laughs> lava? Uh, oh, lava. Crystal? Oh, lava's the biggest one. Oh, crystal. I remember granite, too. I oh, think granite. Granite has huge waves in it. So, yes. well, how much? Well, see, if you, if you would have been there, Mary, if you and I were acquainted, you could have coached me through this. <laughs> so, Buzz, how many weeks of kayaking practice did you have before you did the green oh, eight weeks is about correct <laughs> <laughs> nothing like diving right into it huh right yeah. right but kids don't try this at home <laughs> now let's get back to our helpful advice for our listeners don't you think we should do that okay um here's an easy one we're going to switch from a, to a question from one woman dance party. This looks like a person we all ought to know. Her question is, what socks and gloves do you prefer during wintertime? Hmm. I'm, you know, I'm just in wool socks. I went running today, five miles, and I just had a pair of smart wool socks on. Mm-hmm. Andrew, are you a wool sock guy also? Yeah, year round. Um, in the winter, I just make sure that they're a little bit longer, so there's an, a gap between my tights and my and my sock, the tops of my socks. Same. Okay, that's about it. Well, interestingly enough, well, I, I do have a good glove recommendation, um, which is an unconventional one. So the the best gloves I've ever used, and I struggle with my hands. Um, and actually, a lot of my extremities um sort of are a little bit. I just they don't stay warm that well. So the best pair of gloves I've ever used, as far as like the warmth. Her weight and then also them pretty really durable are uh, the RBH Designs uh, Altitude Mitts or Vapor Mitts. And then ideally with the Altitude Liner. And they're not cheap. They're probably, by the time you're in, you're probably looking at um, $150, $175. Bucks. But uh, those are the gloves that I used um, 
uh, when I did ultralight in the ice box, when I spent like three, four weeks in northern Minnesota in January, they're the gloves I used during my Alaska Yukon expedition when temperatures were regularly 20, 25 degrees below zero, like north of the Arctic Circle in March. So they're um, they're proven. They're awesome. RBH designs? Yes. Okay. You might put that in the show notes. So people are listening. You can look up some of the key uh, products that Mary and Andrew are mentioning, and you could find links to them in the show notes. That's an interesting one. Okay. All right. Uh, personally, for socks, I I never use wool. I, I think wool is a poor material myself. What? It takes a long Yeah. Yeah. The thread count per inch is too low. Oh. Thread count per inch is too low. I don't like it. Um, they're a little too coarse. I think they have a blister aspect. Of course, they're loved. So I'm in a distinct minority here. I like Drymax, I like the polyethylene. You can get a much tighter uh, TPI with it. And then to really prevent blisters, I use thin socks doubled. I just put on two pair of thin socks so the socks rub against each other. But the hands one for winter is very interesting, isn't it? And I guess the one thing I'd say there is that mittens are warmer than gloves. Mm -hmm. So if you have an issue, if you can wear a mitten instead of a glove or have a glove with an over mitten. True. Okay. Uh, we have a question from Benjamin Hancock. And I guess this one should be going to me. Running vests for hikers transitioning to trail running. Well, since I used to run ultimate direction, I can answer that. A pack, of course, is a generally a big sack on your back with uh, some straps to try to keep it stable but a vest is distinct from a pack in that it's more form-fitting and all good vests will come in sizes there should be a female version and there should be a male version so a running vest literally would be sized and will be differently shaped for the two different genders and then it being form-fitting it won't bounce nearly as much and then as i said 10 minutes ago always make sure whether it's a pack or it's a vest that you have accessibility to what you need without having to take it off. So as Andrew is alluding to in terms of the pole discussion, you gotta keep moving, right? Relentless forward motion is how you get from point A to point B. So anytime you take off your pack or your vest, you've wasted a lot of time and you need to do that for heat and cold moderation or rain or sun, but usually you wanna be able to get at water, food, camera necessities without taking it off while you're moving. Do you two have anything else on that? Nope. No. Okay. Well, I guess we nailed that one then. <laughs> okay. Here's a good question for, uh, actually, well, let's go straight with Andrew for this one. How did your guiding change in 2020? Obviously there's this global pandemic taking place. Have you been carrying anything instead besides a face mask or are you using a face mask to ensure safety on your adventures? So the, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the most important thing that we did last year and that we're going to do have to do again, at least for the early trips this year is that uh, we really ask the clients to be very careful about their, uh, their exposures prior to the trip. And to not come if they have uh, any symptoms or if obviously if they test positive um, or if they um, if they have have had it in known exposure and we we don't put any financial pressure on it. So if they've got a case like that, uh, we'll work with them to find another trip um, either this year or, or in some future year. So we don't want someone coming on a trip, even though they feel like even though they've tested positive for covid. Uh, because they've already paid for the trip. So we don't want that. So the, the best thing we can do is just not kind of bring COVID into the field. And then uh, once we're in the field, then there's some pretty simple things that we do. So we ask people to wear masks uh, when they can't socially distance. Um, most of the time they're able to socially distance. Um, on a program level, we um, 
we didn't allow any of the demo gear to go out for two consecutive trips. So that basically would give a give a period of like uh, you know at least five days between trips. So any sort of virus particles that were in the in the demo gear would be dead by the time the next person used it. Uh, we also started doing a, a, a like a group communal like hand washing before each meal, which is one thing that we'll actually continue to do after this pandemic is over because it feels really nice. Um, but I, I would say that that. Just the preventative part was the was the was definitely the important the more important one. When I was watching groups interact last summer, it sort of I, I think if the coronavirus were in a group, probably um, even though people can physically distance, I think that uh, I think it would probably make its way around. So the better thing to do is just not kind of not get it and bring it into the field. Right, Mary, you were a guide in twenty twenty. Was those protocols working for you? Yeah, you know, I think I would say my 2020 guiding season was a bust. Um, I was, <laughs> can you agree, Andrew? Um, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, nice to see you for three days. So I was supposed yeah. to go and guide in June in Alaska in the Brooks Range, and that got canceled because of COVID. And then, of course, it wasn't just COVID that we got tangled up in. We um, had trips in the Sierra in September. Uh, we went down there and of course the wildfires blew up. Andrew and I got one trip in together, a three-day trip. So I've only got gotten to test these things out on a, on a single trip. So, but when, one thing I noticed that, you know, everybody on the trip, they pretty much complied with it, whether or not they had different viewpoints on COVID. Um, everybody complied with what we asked them to do. And so it, it worked well. We had thermometers. Everybody brought their own thermometers and took their temperatures every morning. We kind of made it a fun thing, you know, like, okay, get your thermometers out and let's take your temperature, everybody. And then we had like hand washing parties and stuff like that. And so um, lots of hand sanitizer. I think we did some things with the food too, didn't we, Andrew? We made more individual servings and stuff like that just to yeah, there's less less sort of communal communal supplies for the food. I think a lot of that. So you know, a lot of the policies that we developed were developed um, in like April, May, before we knew a whole lot. And uh, I think like a lot of things that people see, um, a lot of it probably ended up just being theater and not really having a material impact on whether the trips were safe or not. Um, the protocols for 2021 sort of eliminate all the theater and just sort of skip to the good stuff huh. well so is good stuff washing your hands what what what's the good yeah, stuff? good stuff is washing good stuff is washing your hands theater is taking your temperature twice a day because something like only 40 percent of people who have covid actually have a fever and i think you right. pretty much know if you have a fever or not usually that's the <laughs> other thing if yeah if you <laughs> i mean if you feel like crap uh i mean if you have a fever you're gonna say like i don't feel very well so yeah. Right. Well, the hand washing thing is interesting. I saw a, a t-shirt, a novelty t-shirt you could buy as a Christmas present. And I think the slogan on it was, when this is all over, can everyone still keep washing their hands? Mm -hmm. And I think that's yeah. particularly on the, the classic trips, the outdoor trips where everybody gets, one person gets diarrhea, everyone gets diarrhea. And that's, you know, simply because of the dishwashing aspect. Yes. I've, I thankfully have never had a trip where everyone had got, ended up getting diarrhea because we don't do sort of group meals like that. But there are definitely a plenty of cases where, yeah, someone the the cook wasn't wasn't didn't have very good hygiene, and that ends up happening. You have never been a Boy Scout. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was a Boy Scout, but we do not follow many Boy Scout protocols on our trips. Good thinking. Well, this brings me to a, our third to the last question here gear of the year, right? So all magazines, they do the gear of the year, the awards and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But really is the face mask, the gear of the year? What do you two think? I mean, are we talking about an outdoor audience? Because I don't, yeah. I don't necessarily yeah. Yeah, this, feel this, this like. This is for anyone going, not necessarily including your guided trips, but also when you're out for a run, when you're out skiing, when you're out hiking. I don't know. I live in Montana and we're not wearing a mask and when we're out doing those things. So it might be different in Boulder. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's different in Boulder, mm -hmm. let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, in Boulder, it's just a little, I guess, you know, it's a little, it, it's, um, it's kind of like the antithesis of a MAGA hat, right? So 
Like it's just weird to me to see people in Boulder, they're running or they're hiking alone or they're out for a bike ride alone and they still wear a mask. I just, I'm like, and I guess, you know, if you had to err on one side or the other, I'd rather like my community, like be sort of over paranoid about it, but I don't know. My, my, I wouldn't, a mask would not get my gear of the year. There are a couple of other pieces of gear that I was a lot more excited about. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'll ask you that and I'll, that'll be my next question. Uh, I was out for a 20 mile bike ride today and I had my surgical mask on. For one thing, it was kind of cold. So what the heck? And then when I'm breathing hard, I just pull it down. And then when someone comes, I just pull it up. And I find this really innocuous. It's really easy. It's no trouble to me. And I find it like, it's like showing respect sort of for me, at least my personal attitude, it's like saying hello to someone else. It's showing respect. And of course I've traveled in Asia extensively and 30 years ago in Japan, I was shocked to see people in the subway station wearing a mask because they had a cold and that's how they got along in a society like that. So at least for me, masks are working fairly well. Gear of the year, Andrew. (laughs) This this is what is the key piece of gear. So this is the we've answered. By the way, we have answered everybody's questions. So now I'm just going to ask you both in turn, what's the key gear that maybe people don't know about, or they should have but they don't, or maybe they have and you'd like to call more attention to? Can you name anything like that? Though I got two 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 things. Uh, one piece of gear that really impressed me it's the uh, it's the Zolio satellite messenger, and it would be considered an alternative to the Garmin inReaches. And Zolio rethought like how messaging should work, and um, they the there's this global hotspot that you can use uh, when you're in the back country and you don't have cell service. But when you're in the front country uh, and you have cell service, or if you're like traveling and you have Wi-Fi. The Zolio app allows you to send messages through those other means as through those other channels as well. So it's really nice because you can keep, you can have like a continuous thread of conversation and text messages with somebody as opposed to with the Garmin you, in the back country, you have EarthMate and then you get to the front country and you've got some other messaging service. So it sort of combined those. I thought it was really well done. Um, and the technology seems uh, has very few, or at least I didn't, that I found very few bugs, basically no bugs at all. So that was one. Um, the other piece of gear, piece, more piece of gear was um, the Seek Outside Silex. It's this very cool 14 ounce full-sided pyramid style uh, tarp. And I was really innovative. Um, it, so- it solves a lot of the shortcomings of your traditional pyramid shelters. And uh, one other cool thing about it, it, um, it has doors, but the doors don't have zippers. It's very cool. Well, how do you get in and out of the door? They, they used a, they, they configured some line locks in such a way that you basically slide up the doors and then slide them back down. Interesting. Well, Zolio, as you said, they rethought that one and they improved on the Garmin Mini because this one, in a way, only pairs with your phone. And since you normally have a phone with you anyway, you can have a reduced weight and cost with the Zolio because instead of having tiny little fingers to type out messages on tiny little you know, keypads, you just simply pair it with your phone. You can send text messages via the Iridium network by using your cell phone, which is paired with the Zolio. Right. Good call. Good call. So listeners, these two will be mentioned in the written show notes. Mary, what about you? And if there's something that uh, is particular for women, feel free to mention that as well. Okay. Well, before I begin, I just want to say that I had the chance to test out a Zolio unit this year. Um, and I, I had the same experience as Andrew. It was, it was a wonderful little unit. It's a good alternative. It's so much more economical than, say, the garment unit. I think it's a $199 retail value. Um, interestingly enough, I don't know when this podcast is running. If it's running before the 31st, there's actually a deal going on right now with Gaia GPS. We partnered up with them. You can go to our website and search satellite communication device review. And we have run a uh, promo in there where you can click a link on there. And 
if you have a Zolio, you can get free activation through that link and two months free service, I believe, or is it a month free service? Um, and in exchange, if you don't have Gaia GPS, you can get a Zolio unit, activate that and get a one year free premium membership with Gaia GPS. Um, on that note, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I would say gear of the year is having Gaia GPS, honestly. Um, the premium is just a little bit less than $40 per month. No, but seriously, though, we at, have added a bunch of layers this year. Um, and I think they're worth noting. We have the, if you're a backcountry skier, we're just coming out this week with the snow snowtel stations with the snow station daily layer that you can check in on all the different stations and mountain areas throughout the West. We have the wildfire layers we added in, the, in September when all those fires were going on. Um, it syncs up with CarPlay and in any day now, like literally any day now, um, Gaia GPS will be available through uh, and sync up with your Apple watch. So you can record a track or drop waypoints and follow a route with turn by turn directions on it. So I don't mean that to be like a plug, but that is one of my gear of the year. So, yeah. And I don't mean to laugh. It is a, it's, it is a little bit of a shameless plug. Gaia is a very good product. It's um, it's a very good product. It has revolutionized, is revolutionized sort of backcountry navigation. Absolutely. And more specifically, the GPS space. Yeah. Right. Well, the one-two punch is plot your route with CalTopo and then follow it with Gaia. Uh, and so it's in a, we used to use different apps for both those, but those two in combination are an extraordinary way to navigate the backcountry. And it ties in with the rest of this conversation, doesn't it? Because then you have to keep your iPhone charged, which is what someone else has already asked. Because if your iPhone battery goes dead, then it doesn't work. Well, team, this is good. I appreciate it. And listeners, definitely listen in. I mean, definitely read about the show notes on the website that'll give you some links where you can find these products. Yes, Mary. So if people act quickly, this podcast is being released on December 18th. So Christmas might be possible. I'm not sure. Things are kind of busy right now. We'll see. Um, next week after the 18th, which is Christmas day, our podcast shifts to the fastest known time of the year award. This is our fifth annual. It's super fun. We have nominated, how many is it? 37 of the best FKTs, and we're going to review them all in a podcast that releases on December 25th, and then we'll release the first batch of winners on December 31st, that's New Year's Eve, and then we'll release the final batch of winners in a podcast probably on January 7th. All this is being sponsored by the North Face, who's coming out with a new shoe, that I can't talk about yet. But you're going to find out about it. Very cool new shoe. Uh, Andrew, Mary, you two really were the experts on these questions. Thank you. You answered them very well. I appreciate this. Thank you for having us on the show. Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs>